I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is The Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter of U.S. views on China, you'll first hear from Pew Research Center's Laura Silver to discuss Pew's new study on the increasingly negative views of China in the U.S. After learning the facts from Laura, we'll bring in further analysis from David Sanger of The New York Times. Laura, thanks so much for being here today. The Pew survey that you are the lead author on which came out on April 21st, found that about two-thirds of Americans, 66%, have an unfavorable view of China. And this survey was conducted between March 3rd to March 29th. I believe this is the most negative rating that the U.S. has had or U.S. citizens have had towards China since Pew began asking the question in 2005. And it's nearly 20 percentage points up since the start of the Trump administration. So can you tell us a little bit more about the survey and what it said? That's exactly correct. So we've been measuring American views on China since 2005, as you mentioned. And we've seen major upticks, particularly in recent years, in terms of unfavorable views towards China. 66% of Americans have an unfavorable view, which is the highest on record, Last year, though, was also the highest on record that we had seen at the time. And last year also recorded the highest year-on-year change we had seen until that point. So we've seen these major upticks in terms of negative views of China that have corresponded with the beginning of the Trump administration. One of the things that we also have been tracking is Americans' concerns about Chinese threat. And we've seen that that's gone up significantly over the same time period as well, the sense that China is a major threat or a major um, problem for Americans. And what were their views of the Chinese leader, Xi Jinping? So we've been asking about whether or not Americans have confidence in President Xi to do the right thing when it comes to world affairs. That's our standard question. Um, We also ask it about other leaders, including President Donald Trump. We've asked it about um, Angela Merkel and others. But when it comes to President Xi, we see that 71 percent of Americans say they have no confidence in President Xi. And that's up really dramatically since the center began asking. And in fact, just over this current year between 2019 and 2020, we found that faith in President Xi to do the right thing fell 15 percentage points. What were the key threats that most Americans see China as being to the United States? So we measure Chinese threat to Americans in a number of different ways. One was an open-ended question we asked in 2019 about which country or group poses the most serious threat to the United States. And between 2007 and 2019, we saw that the percentage who named China doubled, um, and China is now tied with Russia as the most threatening country. But this particular year, we also asked about a number of particular problems and whether or not those problems are serious for the United States. These questions that we asked included China's impact on the global environment, cyber attacks from China, the U.S. trade deficit with China, the loss of U.S. jobs to China. And while many of these, in fact, all of the ones that I just mentioned, register as very serious for around half of Americans or more, 
The problems that we see as most serious in Americans' rankings are actually China's impact on the global environment, which 61% say is very serious, and then China's policies on human rights and cyber attacks from China, which 57% respectively say are very serious. What about the part in your study you talk about China's power and influence as a threat to the United States? Yeah, so that's a question that we've been tracking over time as well. Specifically, the question asks whether or not China's power and influence is a major threat, a minor threat, or no threat at all to the United States. And while we see that the percentage of people who say that China's power and influence as a threat hasn't changed much in the last couple of years, the percentage who say it's a major threat in particular actually has increased quite substantially. In fact, just since 2018, it's gone up 14 percentage points. So this is a relatively sizable uptick in terms of the percentage of people saying it's a major threat to the U.S. So what's the percentage of people in the United States who now say it's a major threat? Who now say it's a major threat is 62 percent. 62 percent. So what is the percentage who say it's a major or, you know, semi-major threat? Isn't it 91 percent? Yes. Majority of Americans see China's power and influence as a threat. Correct. And does that have to do also with U.S.-China economic worries? So definitely we see that Americans are concerned about things like the U.S. trade deficit with China and the loss of U.S. jobs to China. Mm -hmm. And Republicans and people who lean towards the Republican Party tend to be more concerned about these issues than Democrats or Democratic leaners. And in fact, in that open-ended question I mentioned, where we asked which country or group is the most threatening to the United States, we see that Republicans are much more likely to name China than are Democrats. So definitely we see that the economic part of the relationship does play a role in how people feel about China. Now, we know that the recent crisis, the pandemic with COVID-19, has certainly amplified Americans' concerns with China. But it's got to be hard at this point for you to quantify exactly what that is. Are you able to show in this study or are you looking at in future studies what that exactly is going to be? You're exactly correct that it's very difficult for us to say causally the impact of the current COVID-19 crisis on views of China. In fact, because our survey rolled out from March 3rd to March 29th, we were able to look at whether or not Americans who were surveyed before the national emergency was declared in the United States and after had different opinions on, on Chinese threats. Generally speaking, we don't see any major shifts during the survey period with regard to views of China. So unfavorable attitudes didn't go up among people who were interviewed in the second half of the month compared to those interviewed in the first half of the month. But obviously, we do see that views of China changed significantly between 2019 and 2020. With the type of data we have, which is cross-sectional, it's really difficult for us ever to be able to say causally that something changed. But going forward, what we want to be able to understand is how China's response to the coronavirus crisis may impact how Americans and people in other parts of the world feel about China. So we'll be tracking not only how people might feel about China with regard to its negative handling of the crisis, but also whether or not things like China's health Silk Road that they're attempting to roll out and kind of the positive international aid that they're embarking on with regard to the crisis, whether or not one or both of these plays a role in how people feel. So in the weeks to come, you're going to try to determine with a little bit more of a laser focus what those causations are. Yeah, exactly. So going forward, we'll be trying to monitor how people feel about China's handling of the issue and whether people who think they've done a good job feel more positively, people who think they've done a poor job feel more negatively. But again, the evidence won't be able to be fully causal. 
You can also imagine that it's difficult to be doing surveys right now in this climate. And so we are having to adjust where we can ask questions and how we can ask questions because face-to-face surveys currently are untenable in the coronavirus era. How does that change how you do your work? We'll be moving more of our work in the international space into both online probability panels and into phone surveys. So the work that we did in the United States was conducted as a phone survey with around a thousand Americans. And do you have to adjust your formulas to account for that? Well, we do make sure that the questions that we ask and the length of the survey are appropriate for the mode that we're using. So you can imagine that we need to make sure that phone surveys are somewhat shorter because people's attention span when they're on the phone tends to be quite a bit shorter than when you might have been asked in for tea in a face-to-face environment in some of the countries in which we survey. Right, right. Can you describe for me, you mentioned before Republicans are consistently more negative than Democrats towards China. Can you explain in numbers and in what you found what that means? So currently, 72% of Republicans or people who lean towards the Republican Party have an unfavorable opinion of China, compared to 62% of Democrats or people who lean toward the Democratic Party. But for most of our survey period, we've actually seen that Republicans tend to be more unfavorable towards China than do Democrats. And has the number of Democrats who have a negative view towards China increased? Yeah, so we've actually seen increases among partisans on both sides of the aisle, but we tend to see that Republicans feel more negatively. And last year, when we recorded that largest year-on-year shift at the time, we actually saw that Republicans had grown more unfavorable between 2018 and 2019 than had Democrats over the same period. But definitely, we see that people in both parties tend to have negative views, and they're up among partisans of both stripes. Was there any nuance in that, in the cross-section of Republicans and Democrats and how they view China? So often we've been able to see differences between conservative Republicans and less conservative Republicans on other issues, for example, related to trade war issues that we asked about on other surveys last year. Um, On this particular survey, we didn't dig into those particular differences, but we do tend to see that Republicans and Democrats feel differently about which issues are concerns for the United States For example, Republicans tend to be much more likely to say that the U.S. trade deficit and that the loss of U.S. jobs to China are very serious problems for the U.S. than do Democrats, whereas Democrats, on the other hand, tend to say that China's impact on the global environment is more of a very serious problem for the U.S. What are some of the other issues that you asked Republicans and Democrats about specifically? We also asked about China's growing technological power, China's growing military power, cyber attacks, as I mentioned early, and then one which didn't seem to register as a particular concern nor as a partisan difference that we asked about was tensions between mainland China and Hong Kong. Because at the time when we were writing the questionnaire, that was kind of a bubbling issue. What was the most pronounced difference between Republicans and Democrats when it came to China? The largest difference is concern about the U.S. trade deficit with China, where 56% of Republicans say it's a very serious problem for the U.S., whereas 43% of Democrats say the same. So that's a 13 percentage point gap. So, Laura, what's next in your studies about China? Is it looking at the response to COVID? Is there more to it than that? So the next thing that we're hoping to do will be looking at the response to COVID, but we'll be continuing to monitor some of our other long-term trends that we've been asking globally, including which country is the world's leading economic power. That's something we've been tracking since at least 2008. We really like to get a sense around the world kind of of the perceptions of the balance of power between the U.S. and China, which economy is leading, which military is leading. 
um, and we'll continue to track those issues and also going forward, looking at how those perceptions relate to how people feel about the handling of the coronavirus crisis, both China's handling of it and America's handling. Well, I promise we will ask you back as soon as you have those numbers. Laura Silver, thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter on U.S. attitudes towards China. Great. Thanks for having me. To dive deeper on U.S. views on China in the wake of this pandemic, we'll now turn to my good friend David Sanger of The New York Times, who sometimes doesn't like to call me a good friend, but on this occasion, we're going to say we're good friends just to be civil onto the podcast to ask David, what is going on between the U.S. and China in the aftermath, or aftermath isn't even the right word, as we're still struggling with the pandemic? First, thanks for having me uh, on, Andrew. And second, you, you know, you are a good friend, like, you know, most of the time. There have been occasional lapses, but we'll, we'll worry about that another time. <laughs> it's like the U.S.-China relationship, right? Um, it's something, something like, like that, that, yeah. So what do crises like what we're going through with coronavirus do in the world of international affairs? They sort of rip bare all of the fundamental tendencies, all of the divisions that were there before, but which become all the more vivid because you're dealing in a crisis atmosphere. You saw this in the alliance relationships that have been strained. You saw this when the president cut off flights from Europe after he did his uh, flight restrictions from, from China without telling the allies. And in the China case, what you have seen play out are not only all of the divisions between President Xi's China and President Trump's United States, but you have seen here at home the president ricochet from one mood to another with China. So when this first happened in January, what was the president involved in? He was trying to get through impeachment and he was trying to get the phase one trade deal. And that was his number one priority because he didn't really think coronavirus was going to turn into very much. And the phase one trade deal was all about keeping the stock market boosted up in an election year. So he had plenty of nice things to say about how President Xi was handling the COVID crisis. He's been very strong, his favorite word, right? Got to use that phrase, strong, right? They've been very transparent. He was actually more complimentary of the Chinese than was the World Health Organization. And you don't have to take my word for it. Just go back and read the tweets and watch the answers to the questions. At the same time that he would say this isn't going to be a problem for us and all that, he would say, I think the Chinese have this under control. So that was part one. Then comes February. And it becomes clear, as we laid out in our big reconstruction of, of this set of events, that the effort to contain this was going badly and that they were going to have to move from containment to mitigation. And at that moment, the president's tone had to change because, remember, he said we were going from 15 cases to zero. And it turned out that we were going from 15 cases to hundreds of thousands of cases. And since he said it wasn't his responsibility, it had to be someone's fault. And so all of a sudden, this became the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus. Now, I actually don't blame them for using that phrase. I mean, after all, it did originate in Wuhan from all that we can tell. But 
they were using it a bit too aggressively to the point that Secretary Pompeo, in a meeting with the G7, insisted that the phrase Wuhan virus be put into the communique. And that turned out to be so divisive that they didn't issue a communique. So the Wuhan virus phase was sort of February into March. And now what's happened is they've had to make a a determination that in the campaign, they would portray Joe Biden as being weak on China, which means that they have to turn around and basically lay out why the Chinese are responsible for everything here. And look, the Chinese were responsible for a lot. They did cover up. They didn't allow Americans to come in. They did help spread this rumor that the U.S. Army had conducted some field experiment and planted this thing in China. They did go out and, as we reported, and have their own agents retweet things to suggest that the United States was about to go into some kind of military-style lockdown. So the Chinese have been, you know, acted extremely badly, but the president has used every moment he could and his allies to go deep in the blame. So tell me about the disinformation campaign that you and your colleagues reported on in the Times. So this disinformation campaign basically takes a page out of the Russian playbook from 2016, which is to say, don't invent divisions in the United States. The Americans, you know, one of their greatest natural products is political division, right? I mean, we turn it out every day. So all they had to do was go in and accelerate it. So if you take an event like we're about to go do home quarantine and you make it sound like a lockdown and you spread a rumor that turns out the NSC had to retweet out and say that's not what we're about to go do, all you do is accelerate the divisions between those who believe the federal government is overstepping, closing down the economy, everything you've seen in the protests. And you know what? Between now and the end of the year, what's happening here because of the division about how long to keep the economy shut is we've created a field day for Russian and Chinese disinformation specialists because they're just going to have to go scan the headlines and pour a little oil, you know, into their Twitter feed. How do we counter that? How does the Trump administration intend to counter that? We don't have an effective strategy. In part, that's because democracies are really bad at both battling and trying their own disinformation operations. Why? Because you've got groups around, you know, like the New York Times and every other major news organization that will reveal an American disinformation campaign to be an American disinformation campaign. That pesky New York Times. Yeah, right. Get it right, Andrew. The pesky failing New York Times. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The fake news, New York Times, the fake news, failing New York Times that since the president has uh, come into office has added how many millions of paid digital subscribers. But anyway, time out, though, I was wondering, when are we going to see David Sanger at one of the president's early evening briefings in the White House press room? You have not made an appearance. I I have to my knowledge. You're not likely to see me at these. Uh, I I did my six years of White House correspondent work, thanks, a little earlier in my career, end of Clinton and through the Bush administration. And uh, I think it's being handled ably. 
And uh, since he doesn't really answer many questions out there anyway, I'd much rather do my reporting the way I do my reporting. <laughs> so. But don't don't you think it would be interesting though if if you guys stacked the room and had like all the old school White House reporters? You had you and Boo Miller, you had Wolf Blitzer, you know, you had Jake Tapper on, and so so on and so forth. You had like this all star heavily experienced White House press corps of old sit in the briefing room with President Trump. What do you think that would look like? I think it would look like old timers day at Chase Stadium, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. It would be it would be like the old school game. It's like, right. hey, who, who brought all these geezers out here? You know? Right. 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 I know it right. might be fun for a day. Uh, he probably okay. wouldn't recognize us, you know? Anyway. The people who are in there seem to be doing a fine job of it by themselves. I mean, sure. The great thing about the president here is all you have to do is sort of rev him up. I mean, I haven't heard a whole lot about using hydrochloroquine as a solution in the past week or so. I can't imagine why that would be. Well, you know, CNN reported that it dropped off like 300 percent the amount of times they're talking about it now, of course. Yeah, because it's, it's really, really interesting. Not working. Yeah, we, we move from one thing to another. So back to the China issue. On the American side, the president's got an incentive here to make everything look like Chinese plots underway, and it helps him politically. And on the Chinese side, they have a real interest in distracting from how badly they handled the early days of the coronavirus. And so it's useful to them to cast the Americans as the ones who are trying to use this entire set of events to uh, try to keep China down and keep it from being able to take its rightful place in the world. So you've got a, a bad meeting of the alignment of the stars in which both sides have the opportunity here to go play to their base at home. And, and you know, as you said, you throw in presidential campaign here in the United States. And so that adds to the fuel of the fire as well. If President Trump is using China as a foil, and at the same time, if I'm hearing you correctly, you know, and what's been reported in the media that he is portraying Joe Biden as soft on China, what is the overarching strategy to actually work with China on matters going forward that we need to work with China on? Well, I'm not sure there is one. This is not administration known for strategic planning. But I'll tell you the one that worries me the most. It's the race for the vaccine. The Chinese are going after the vaccine. We've got a number of companies going after the vaccine as well. And the big question is, who's going to get there first? Once they get there first, are they going to try to make the vaccine available primarily to their own people or to globally, right? So is there going to be a nationalistic element to this? And let me just play out this scenario for you, Andrew, because it's sort of fun to think about. Supposing for a moment that the Chinese simply declare they've come up with a vaccine. We haven't seen it. The FDA hasn't tested it, much less approved it. And the Chinese say that they're beginning to administer it, maybe because their own FDA has uh, made this whole thing, you know, a, a workable vaccination. What do we do at that moment? How does the president navigate a world in which it looks to everybody as if the Chinese are getting vaccinated and Americans aren't? How do the Chinese play it about whether or not they're going to make the vaccine available? What if the Chinese say, well, the Americans can take care of themselves, 
but we're going to go help all of those NATO allies who aren't actually ready to be helpful. Americans can't help. So Italy, here's your set of doses. And, you know, all the, the games that you've seen them playing throughout Europe. That is quite a scenario. And you don't think that the Trump administration is gaming these scenarios out? I don't know if they are or not. But even if you're supposing for a moment that they are gaming that out, what do you do about it? You go to the FDA and say, we don't care about your approval process. Just, you know, get a vaccine out there. Well, you know, you rush a vaccine, people can die, right? But the political pressure to have a vaccine is big enough right now. Imagine how big it will be if some other country, and the odds on betting would be that it would be China, would declare that they have it first. Tough decisions ahead for Trump administration. Who is running point on this, in your view, from your reporting? Who is the key person? You know, some days it's Peter Navarro, some days it's Mike Pence, some days it's Mike Pompeo, some days it's the president himself. Who is the key person in the administration, in your view, on China? Well, the key thing to be remembered uh, about China is, in this administration, is it's been the source of huge division. So there are hawks like Navarro and Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. There are those like Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, whose views on China are 180 degrees different from what Pompeo's are. And, you know, Mnuchin is much more out of the school of, hey, we're the world's one and two economies. We don't have a choice but to work together. So let's figure out how we're going to make this happen. And Secretary Pompeo and uh, certainly Peter Navarro and some others with more hawkish views inside uh, the White House are on the other side of that. And the problem is that the president doesn't know his own mind on this issue. He sounds like uh, Mnuchin when he needs to get his trade deal together. And he sounds like Pompeo when he thinks it's to his political advantage to go after the Chinese and portray Joe Biden is weak on China. Now, let me ask you this. The Pew study that I talked about earlier in this podcast with Laura Silver shows there are pretty serious dislike of China amongst both Republicans and Democrats, but it's heavier on the Republican side by about 10 percentage points. How do you think that this is going to play out in our election process and in this presidential campaign going forward? It's a great question because... China has played for both parties at various moments. So you tried before to make me feel really old by uh, reminding everybody that I covered the White House in the Clinton administration <laughs> before many of your listeners were born, right? And how did Bill Clinton get elected president post-Tiananmen by claiming that he would never go deal with the butchers of Beijing? That was the phrase butchers of Beijing. What did he do with the butchers of Beijing? He ushered them into the World Trade Organization by the time he was done. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So he made a perfect 180 degree turn. And it was the Democrats, of course, who were fighting him on that. He only got the WTO legislation through the Senate at that time by appealing to free trade Republicans. In a moment of trying to make sure that the Democratic base holds together with Biden, Biden cannot afford to sound at all weak on China. What he's got to do is portray President Trump 
as the one who has, keeps calling Xi Jinping my good friend and ignoring their various threats and so forth. So what you're going to see, I suspect, in this campaign is a kind of race to the bottom here to claim that the other side is the panda hugger. David Sanger, as always, amazing insight. Our friendship is intact, yet we've recorded another podcast. I didn't call you old. I just wanted people to know how much experience you have. I appreciate that, Andrew. And what I regret about your podcast is that since it's not a video podcast, People can't see what I can see, which is your quarantine beard. <laughs> we'll have to do this on video pretty soon. Yeah, on one hand is impressive, and on the other hand is really gray. Yeah, <laughs> that is for sure. That is for sure. David, thanks a lot. We'll have you on very soon. I really appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 